One of the most popular ways that the New Testament speaks about the Christian life is as a walk. This shouldn't be surprising since Jesus calls his disciples to follow him. This summer at Holy Cross, we're looking at how we are called to follow Jesus. What are the distinctive practices of the Christian life? Why do we do those things? And how does the perfect and finished work of Jesus change how we approach living? Join us as we take a sustained look in the scriptures at The Walk. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to James chapter 3. Kids ages 3 to kindergarten can end down to Holy Cross. Kids worship, head out, or not. That'd be fine too. It's all the same with us. That is there for you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are about four on that back table that are our gift to you. Well, don't take all four of them. You really only need one, but uh, if you don't have one, take one. Okay, Don't walk out of here without one. In any case, having the Bible in front of you would be helpful for you, if for nothing else, than to know that this is not helpful thoughts from Rick. This is, uh, this is the time where we're going through the Word of God. This is what the Bible says to us, okay? So most of you know that we're in, believe it or not, the last four weeks, the last four weeks of a series, our summer series, the last four weeks of our summer series. We're in the last four weeks of our summer series um, looking at what the essential practices are of the Christian faith. What it is that we do now that we've come to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Um, And this week we come to how Christianity should affect our speech. Now, in saying that, I know that most of us think that what I'm about to do is spend uh, 30 or so minutes talking about how you shouldn't cuss. Uh, That is actually has nothing to do with this. Uh, because how our speech is used is far more complicated than that. Um, and the gospel speaks to it deeper than just quick cussing. Okay? Uh, but look, our passage this week comes from the book of James. The book of James is written by the brother of Jesus. And when I say brother, I mean he, he's a half-brother. He's the uh, son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus, of course, uh, was adopted by Joseph because he had no earthly father. Um, James was a leader in the church after Jesus rose from the dead. I say after because before Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus was like walking around Israel doing his thing, James actually thought he was crazy, which you would too. What would you think if your brother started walking around saying, hey, I'm God? You know, uh, or like we know that James and his siblings and their mama went to go find Jesus one time because they literally thought we're going to take him home. We got to get him back to Nazareth. Brother has lost his mind, okay? Uh, and then you add to that, not only is your brother saying that he's God, but I mean, you know, Jesus was sinless. So what do you think it was like growing up in the house with, when your older brother is sinless, right? Why can't you be more like your brother? Like, that's just, like, I don't know. He's sinless. I, you, like, it, you can imagine what that must have been like. And yet, the New Testament is very clear that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared personally to his brother James. James encountered his risen brother, the brother he knew had died, and he placed his faith in him and became a central leader in the early church. And this letter of his is full of wisdom that is shaped by the gospel. Okay? It is a, is a book of New Testament wisdom. And this morning, he tells us what it looks like to walk in a held tongue. So if you have your place in James 3, if you'd stand, uh, it's our habit here, in honor of God's word, be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
For we all stumble in many ways, and anyone does not stumble in what he says. He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by such strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting the, on fire the entire course of our lives, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things should not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's the word of God given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to this time, we ask for you to work in our hearts. Lord, you know where I'm at. You know where everyone in this room is at this morning. We ask that you would meet us there. You would open our ears to hear from you. Open our hearts to believe in the fact that you would preach to us your gospel. Lord, let Christ and his cross come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the back because you alone, Lord, hold the words of eternal life. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so you guys know this, but we live in a gotcha culture, a time unlike any other in which careless words can ruin your life because everybody's got this thing on their phone where they can record you and listen and then post it on some internet site. If you don't believe me, ask uh, ask a dude, his name's Riley Cooper. Riley Cooper was a wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, doing pretty well for himself, and then um, got caught saying something stupid. Busted out a concert with a racial slur, and suddenly he is done. Like, he's still playing, but life for him has tremendously changed. Or, or um, if you don't follow sports, maybe politics instead, think of um, former governor of Virginia by the name of George Allen, who was a you know, promising presidential candidate until he lost his cool when heckled by a, an opposing staffer and did the same thing. Muttered a racial slur, and his career was over. Or ask Adam Richman, the star of Man vs. Food, right? He didn't say something audibly, but he foolishly hit send or post or whatever on his Twitter feed when a challenge was just emotionally went off on something, just failed to heed that warning of wait, wait a while before you hit send, right? And his, his, he lost his TV show. Our words can get us into trouble like never before, but the reality is that our words have always been powerful. And if you don't believe that, I would invite you just to walk onto a a school playground for a while and just watch. Listen and watch. Watch at how words affect individuals. Or, you know, look, how many of us in this room have had our entire lives kind of changed course by a word that was said either carelessly or intentionally, for the bad or for the good? Christianity takes words seriously, and that is because the the Bible sees speech as important because people, us, we image God, and God creates, governs, upholds, and preserves the universe by his 
word, which means that if we are made in his image, not that we are doing the same thing, because I can't say like jelly donut and it just you know, appears. But at the same time, our words do something. They mean something. They matter. But what does our speech do? Why is governing our speech so hard and how can it be changed? That's, those are the questions we're asking this morning. Uh, you can follow along in your outline if that's helpful for you in your bulletin. If not, don't worry about it. Just leave it there. But we're going to ask three questions. We're going to look at what our speech does. We're going to look at what it shows and then how it changes. Okay? What it does, what it shows, and how it changes. Let's start with what it does. Okay? Now, James begins this whole passage with a warning, right? He talks about, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that teachers are going to be judged with a greater strictness. Um, now, we don't have time to go into everything that, that, that those, especially those first two verses are talking about. Um, just what he's basically saying is that teachers of the faith will be judged more strictly because their words influence others. And, and, uh, and, that, and then later in verse 2, he says, look, um, for you know that no one... No one is able to completely bridle their tongue. That we all stumble in many ways. And that if anyone is able to, to rein in their tongue, that that person's perfect. Uh, they're able to rein in their whole bodies. So he makes the point that, that unless you are perfect, you probably stumble using your speech. Since I'm pretty sure nobody in this room would make the claim that they're perfect, at least not outwardly, this means that this text really is applicable to all of us, right? All right. Now let's get to the first thing James says about the tongue, what it does. It sets the course. Look at verses 3 to 5. He talks in here about two things. He uses two metaphors. He talks about a bridle in the mouth of a horse. He talks about a rudder on the back of a ship. Now, the, the thing that's in common of both of these, and the point he's trying to make, is that these are very small things, relatively, that actually direct something very large. So, you've been around horses, bridles, you know, the little bit, it's about that big, it fits in their mouth, it's like that big around, nothing huge. A horse is a powerful, strong animal. And yet, for some reason, this little piece of metal, you do this with it, and the, the horse just goes wherever you want. The same is true of, of a ship. Gigantic ship, relatively small rudder. You know, that's the thing on the back of the ship that goes like this, and then the, the rest of the ship goes where it wants. That's, Paul, that's James's point. You have these small things that direct the course of these larger things, these stronger things. Um, and so he says there in verse 5, So also the tongue is the smallest of members and makes great posts. Now, if you were here last week, you know that when in the ancient world when they talked about members of a body, they were talking about like organs or parts. They're not talking about voluntary associations, right? So, so when he's talking about this, he's like, it's the smallest part of our body, but it makes great boasts. It steers us. The tongue, like the rudder, steers our hearts. It directs us in a sense. And you know what he means, right? I mean, it's the, the experience of verbalizing something. Sometimes, just to verbalize something makes a difference. Words are real things. And there are times when we verbalize something and our hearts follow. You're in a fight with a roommate or a friend. And you say something out of anger quickly that's very demeaning. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, Yeah, yeah I really do think that. I really do believe that about them. Or, or parents, you're, you're um, you know, just at the end of the rope with your kids one day and, and just out of anger and weariness and whatever, you, the, the words, you're such a disappointment, come out of your mouth. And all of a sudden, every way that your, your child or, or children have, have uh, failed, your image of what they should be comes to the front of your mind. And it becomes real to you. 
Or positively, right? You, you spend time regularly praying for someone who completely drives you nuts, and you find that your heart starts to warm to them. Our speech can direct the course of our hearts. Words are little things. They vanish in a second. They're, they are the, the pitched vibrations of fleshy cords, and yet they can turn the entire course of our lives, sometimes positively, right? But mostly, if we're being honest, negatively. So they set our course. But secondly, they des- it destroys. Look down at verses 5 to 6. He says, first he talks about a huge forest fire that's set on fire by a small spark. Now, this is talking about the damage that our speech can do externally. It's very important because he, he talks about both here, but externally. And then he says, the tongue is a fire. The tongue is appointed as a world of unrighteousness polluting the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our lives and is itself set on fire by hell. Now let me break this down for us. When he says the tongue is a fire, what he means is just like that spark that can light up the whole forest, that's your tongue. It is that spark, and it can do that kind of damage. A huge conflagration can be set off just by a word, by, by a phrase, by, a, by an inflection. But then he goes on and he says that it's not just external. He says it's a, that the tongue is appointed as the world of unrighteousness in our Members are in our body. All right, that is really weird. So let me explain that a little. See, the Bible is really honest about the fact that the world is jacked up. I know that you know this. I know this. I know a lot of times we we can think that the Bible wants to speak in like fairyland, and then we we address it like it's talking about fairyland, but it's not. It's talking about the world, the world as it is, and the world is jacked up. It's very honest about that. Uh, you and I know, unless we are hopelessly optimistic, that something isn't right. Now, we, have may, we may have different ideas on what that something is that's not right, but we all know that something is clearly not right. The Bible says the fundamental problem in the world starts with our broken relationship with God. We were created for Him, created for a dependent relationship with Him, uh, but right in the beginning we turned from Him, and when we did, everything changed. You cannot overstate the effect that that one event had on the rest of human history. The rest of even our lives. We betrayed God and so we became guilty before him. But we also turned in on ourselves. We were made for dependence with God and like interdependence with one another. But now we are so committed to independence, not just from God, but from with independence from others as well. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't want to need you. We became stuck in that. And James is telling us that the state of being that we are now in finds its best expression in our speech. It's made most visible, or in this case probably audible, in our words. It is like the world of unrighteousness, a broken world right in the middle of our being, and it pollutes us. What he means is that not only does our tongue do damage externally, but also internally, right? Now, the external thing is obvious. I could give you a bunch of examples of us, how we abuse one another with our words. Like, if you're married, you know that that happens. If you're not married, you know that. If you've ever grown up in a home, you know that happens, right? So I don't need to give you examples from real life about that. Maybe one from the mouth of Jesus is good. He says that uh, when, when you call someone fool, right? And, and, and there, that's probably not as strong a word as it meant in the first century when Jesus used the word raka. But uh, for, for us, it was the word fool. And when he says, when you do that... It is like murdering them in your heart. You're speaking death to them. Why don't you think about that for a minute? You're speaking death to another person. 
You and I know that that old adage about sticks and stones and words will never hurt me is a bunch of garbage. Like, that is not true. That is what you and I say to try and mitigate the pain in ourselves and to get back at the person who just did it. It doesn't hurt me. Like, yeah, it did. Like, you and I know that some of us in this room are still governed by words that were said to us on a school, ground, a school playground. We're still trying to prove them wrong. It just happens. Our tongues speak death to others. That's external. The thing is, is that internal damage is harder to see, but it's no less real. Many of us in this room, many of us in this room are plagued by internal dialogues. Internal dialogues in which you just destroy yourself. You make a mistake, something bad happens, and you just abuse yourself to no end. Oh, I can't believe, why did you do that? You're such an idiot. What is wrong with you? You're such a failure. Like, your life is dominated by speech that no one else can hear that is tearing you apart, filled with shame, filled with anger, filled with self-loathing. And the crazy thing is you think you deserve every, every verb, every adjective. See, on the outside you look fine, but... But internally, internally, your words to yourself could not be played on national airwaves without an FCC warning. Listen to me. Don't think that Jesus' words on calling someone a fool only apply when you say it to others. Speech can destroy. But lastly, James says it cannot be tamed. Look at verse 7 to 8. He says that every kind of animal can be tamed and has been tamed, but no one can tame the tongue. Okay? He's doing two things here. First and foremost, he's returning us to the story of the Bible. Because not only were we created for relationship with God, but we were created to do something. And namely to, to have dominion over the earth. And what, what that meant was to enact God's reign over the earth as God would do it. And part of that was having dominion over the animals. And James is saying, look, we have dominion over the animals. But our own tongues, no chance. He says it's a restless evil. That, that, is, that invokes the image of an animal that is pacing back and forth, watching its prey, looking for something, looking for a chance to jump out. It's the same image that Peter gives of Satan as a prowling lion, looking back and forth, waiting for someone to devour. It's the same image that, that the, in, the writer of Genesis gives us in, in uh, Genesis 4 when when God is talking to Cain as he's thinking about what he's going to do about his brother Abel, who, who now is the favored one, and he, he should be the favored one. And, and God says, sin is, is crouching at the door, waiting, waiting to, to control you. It's the same kind of idea. He says that it is a restless evil, but it is also full of deadly poison, which brings out that image of like a, a poisonous snake, Right? And so he's saying that there's no chance that you can get this thing under control. And you know this. He's not saying anything you don't know. Look, you and I, we have, we have been taught since we were little, right? If you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. How's that working for you? You doing all right with that? I, I guarantee you can't hold out more than five minutes. Right? Some of y'all like five seconds. I know you. Okay? And that, like, that's... That's the reality. Even if we try at our hardest, eventually bad things break out. We can't tame it. We can't tame it. It destroys, it sets our course, and it cannot be controlled. 
Okay? Now, the why of that comes out in what our speech shows. So look down at verses 9 and 10, because first it shows our inconsistency. James says, with the same tongue, with the same speech, we bless God and we curse people made in his image. Now, listen, this is speaking especially to Christians. So if you're a Christian here, I need you to check in real quick so you can listen to me. He, he's almost, at this point, he's been almost exclusively talking negative things, right? He's just really down on, the, on our words. But here he brings in a positive, right? We bless God. And that's a good thing, right? To bless God means to, to give him the, the praise, the adoration that he's due to, to make much of him because he is to be made much of because of all that he has done. And so he, he enters into that possibility. We bless God with it. Isn't that awesome? Great. Good for you. But then he says, then we turn around and we curse people made in his image and that this shouldn't be. Here's why. In the ancient world, there were lots of... Um, Images of God, of gods everywhere, right? And the image of a deity was generally a statue. Generally some either large statue or sometimes they had little bitty ones you keep on your mantelpiece. It's your household idol. That's a good one to have around. But the point is that if you wanted to go to an image of the deity, that's what you would do. But if you spoke against it, you spoke against the deity itself. This is why Paul got himself into trouble in Ephesus. Because he was putting out of business the silver makers. You know what their chief industry was they just like make spoons and use spoons right silver was made to make images of the deity artemis and so it was it was what paul was doing was actually he was speaking not against their trade which is what he was doing but against their deity to speak against the images to speak against the deity and the same is true in the bible with our god except in the fact that god has said don't go and make statues i don't need pictures i don't need images you know why i've already done it Look to your left and your right. There's the image of God. And so what James is saying here, what he is getting at, is that when we curse people made in the image of God, what we're actually doing is cursing the Creator himself. So you bless God on Sunday, you curse him on Monday. Or sometimes Sunday mid-afternoon or ten minutes after worship. Or in the middle of worship. You know, it's like, this, this is what we do. James is getting at is that you and I were made to bless. We were made to give life with our words. But the problem is we don't. Even when we try to use our speech right, we aren't consistent. We can't stay consistent. And the reason for all of that comes in verses 11 to 12, where we see how it shows our brokenness. Why is it that our speech does such damage? Why can't we control it? Why do we seem that we're constantly inconsistent? The reason, listen really close, the reason is that the source is bad. The source is bad. He says, does a spring gush out from the same opening fresh in salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, a grapevine figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. Okay, here it is. If you check down, I need you to come back in, everybody. All right? This is the entire point. And it links up what James is saying with what, with what Pat read earlier from the mouth of Jesus. Okay? The problem isn't our behavior. It's not our behavior. Now, some of you are thinking, wait, Rick, you just said the problem's our speech. It is. But the speech is coming from somewhere else. If you have a headache that's born out of the fact that you've got insane amounts of tension in your neck, if you take a, if you take a pill, that's fine. It's, the, the headache will go away for a little while. But if you've never dealt with what's causing the stress in the first place, it's going to come back. 
The problem is our hearts. That's what James means when he says the spring and the tree and the vine and the pond. What he's saying is that our speech is an indicator. It's a barometer of what's going on in here. If you were a, a child of the, of the 90s, right, like, then you, you remember hypercolor, right? Hypercolor t-shirts. Everyone's looking at me like I'm strange. Okay, maybe that's something they only had in Central Virginia. I don't, so here's what a hypercolor t-shirt was. It was this thing that you put on, it was like green. And when it got hot, it turned yellow. That was neat. Until everyone realized that the human body does not distribute heat evenly. And so it became very awkward and embarrassing when your whole shirt was green except for your yellow armpits, you know, and, and the yellow streak down your back. And it was like, that was a nifty thing and it just failed. But the point is, is this, it was made to show where the heat was. And the same thing is true of what Jesus is saying, what James is saying of your speech. Your speech shows where your heart is. Now, the problem is that most of us have been taught that our main issue is our behavior. We need to do better. We need to get better. And and some of us even think that's why Jesus came. He came just to give us new rules to get better uh, because he maybe was closer to God than other people. But that's not it at all. See, the Christian gospel tells us that we are far more messed up than that. Far more broken than that. I think your problem is just a few words coming out of your mouth. You, You in for it. Like, it's way worse The problem isn't what we do, it's what we are. Because when we betrayed God in the very beginning, we became sinners. In other words, now we sin because we are sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And so everyone, everyone is stuck in this and needs rescue. You and I don't need a new morality. Look, it's like every, every few years there comes a new morality. Every decade or so we have a... I know, I know some of, some of uh, older folks in the room think that our culture is so amoral. It's, it's not amoral. Just switch moralities on us. Just switch moralities. They, you know, we, we went from... from uh, you know, in, in, the, in the last generation we were hard on, on uh, you know, sex and substances. And now, oh, that's not a big deal. But now we're real big on economics and environment, right? It's just... We just switch moralities. We don't need a new morality. We need a new heart. We speak violence into the world. We do damage with our speech. We can't control our tongues because our hearts are bad. You cannot get sweet water from a salty spring. You cannot do it. If we want to change our speech, we have to change our hearts. And good luck with that. So what do we do? Well, James' last words here give a hint at the answer. One that... His big brother was clear about. We've got to get a new heart. Now, I said a few minutes ago that most of us have been taught that we just need to get better, to do better, to to be better. But we can't. We are, by nature, betrayers of God, turned in on ourselves and in need of rescue. But the good news for us this morning is that that is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to give us new rules. He He came to give us a new record. He lived the life we couldn't. He spoke blessing both to God and to other people without fail. He never sinned, and yet he died in the place of sinners. The Apostle Paul tells us, he was an early early Christian leader as well, he he tells us in another book in the New Testament that he he who knew no sin, that's Jesus, he didn't know sin, he, he had none, became sin for us, in other words, took our place as sinners, so that in him we might become God's righteousness. Since our betrayal of God deserves judgment, Jesus bore that for us. 
He did what he did so that we could return to the dependence on God we were made for. He lived to give us a new record before God. He died to bear our sin. And he rose again to give us new life. That that new spring from which fresh water can flow. Now, listen to me. No matter how hard you try, I don't care how good a gardener you are, you cannot get figs from a grapevine. You cannot get, I, I, have, I have tomatoes and peppers and cucumbers and some herbs in my garden right now. No matter how hard I try, I am not getting a cantaloupe from my cucumber vine. It is not happening. I don't care what you put on it. We need to be remade, not reformed. And so the call this morning to us is to come to Jesus and let him give you that new spring that you both desire and were made for. If you're living here this morning and you're, you're like, I cannot control my speech. All I do is, is throw out barbs to other people. All I do is hurt other people. All I do is wound myself. Jesus is the only one who can change us. Now, of course, <laughs> some of us are intuiting the problem, right? Because I just said that the real issue is faith in Jesus. You've got to come to Jesus. And yet, if you've been in the church any amount of time, you know that like Christians are some of the worst people with their speech. So what's up with that? Just discredited my entire argument. <sighs> the reason for that, friends, is that we still have an old nature banging around in there. And you and I find it easier to live out of that instead of out of relationship with Jesus. Here's what I mean. When we, there are things for us that come naturally, ways of being, ways of doing things and all that stuff. If we want to learn a new way, we have to make it second nature, right? But to make something second nature, you actually have to do it. You actually have to do it. And so I want to speak for a second about what it looks like to live out of this new heart with our speech. First, let me speak to the negative. Some of us in this room um, love, love to tear people down. We love it. Normally behind their backs. Some of, sometimes, sometimes we're just up front with it. But most of the time it's behind their backs. Now sometimes we call this gossip. I would say most of the times we wouldn't, right? Because that's not nice. And so... We're nice people. We would never gossip. We complain instead. Or we, uh, we call it something else. But let me unmask it if I can. Because we gossip for a couple of reasons. One is that we tend to want to tear others down, make others look worse so that we can look better. Because we think that life is a zero-sum game. And that if I'm going to have my place in the world, it means that somebody else can't. So if they start to look good, I have to push them down so I don't lose my spot. Or we do that because we think that our opinion of them is authoritative. Right? Like my opinion of them is God's opinion of them. My perspective is God's perspective. My perspective is the authoritative one. So if they're doing something I don't like, I can vocalize that because I'm right and they're wrong. And I can tell whoever I want. They threaten our place and we will ruin them to stay right. And we think too highly of ourselves. Now, the thing is, is that we mask it spiritually, right? If you're a Christian in the room, you mask it spiritually. We ask people to pray for us, right? Please pray for me. I'm struggling with this person because they do. And then we just spend a bunch of time just railing on them so that everyone thinks less of them. But it, pray for me because I get frustrated at them because they are awful. Or, or we don't ask people to pray for us. We ask them to pray for them. Please pray for so-and-so because... They are, and then we just gut all their secrets and make them look as bad as possible. This is what we do, right? 
Listen to me. The gospel says to us that there is nothing wrong with them that isn't wrong with you. And so, your position of authority on things, do you understand there is nothing wrong with them that is not wrong with you? (laughs) But it also tells us that our place before God was secured by Jesus and not by your performance. It is not a zero-sum game. You are secure in Christ. No matter where they are, what they're doing, who, who's singing their praises, you are secure in Jesus. So here's what Jesus would have us do. If you have an issue with another person, okay, you have two options. If they have sinned against you, okay, your, your options are this. You can confront them on it, or you can keep your mouth shut. There's two options. Jesus is very clear in Matthew 18. Those are your options. Those are my options. If your issue with them isn't so much sin as simply preference, and I know that you and I have a hard time distinguishing those things, but listen, if it can't be found in the Bible, it's a preference, not sin. What we, have, we have to do this, okay? Remember, your preferences are not God's preferences. And then keep your mouth shut. See, it's very simple. Same thing. Just keep your mouth shut. Okay? Now, that's for some of us. But some of us need to begin taking seriously the damage our words do. Because we love to use this phrase. I'm sorry that you took it that way. But. Right? We love that phrase. You know what that phrase means? I'm not responsible for what comes out of my mouth. It's all up to how you receive it. And I'm sorry you received it negatively. I was just telling the truth. As if the truth is a large bat that we are allowed to swing whenever we want and wound people with. Because I'm just being honest. I'm being real. I'm just being real, which means I can say whatever I want. I'm not accountable for it. That is garbage. Not true at all. Listen, listen to me. The New Testament is very clear that truth, like all things, is to be used in the service of love. Not to batter people with. Not to wound people with. Not to beat them. If you are using your words to wound another person, and I do not care if the words are true, but if you are using them not to see them flourish, but to punish them, to wound them, to make them retreat from you because they are getting too close to the mark in your own life, you are in the wrong and you need to repent. And some of us need to repent of even using the phrase, I am sorry you took it that way, but. You are responsible for what comes out of your mouth. For those of us that use truth as a weapon, James would say you are blessing God on Sunday and cursing his image every other day, and it should not be. Now that's externally. In the same way, I want to speak to my friends here who have that internal voice, that internal voice that loves to abuse. Okay, listen real close. Listen, I know that you think you deserve that. I know you do. I know that you've been doing it as long as you can remember. And I even realize that for many of us, it's the the only way we think we're going to be able to change. But I want to ask you two questions. And these are questions that I'm just going to ask. I would encourage you to think about them, process them with someone. If you don't have anybody to process them with, come to me. Okay? And I will process them with you. But here are the questions. First, what are you so afraid of happening 
that you were willing to be so destructive towards yourself in a way that you would never be to someone else? What are you so afraid of happening that you were willing to just abuse the tar out of yourself and you would never think of doing that to anyone else? What is so scary? But second, do you realize that Jesus died to reconcile you, the you that you are abusing, to God? He died to reconcile you to God. Would you destroy the one for whom Christ died? Listen, he knows you. He knows me. He knows us better than we know ourselves. You think he doesn't know your stuff? He knows your stuff. Paul says that when, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knows your stuff. Trust me, he knows way more of it than you do. You think you know it. In like t- two months, you're going to know more about your stuff than you did you do right now. And you're going to be like, whoa. Jesus would be like, yeah, I got that, man. I, I already knew. We're good. We're good. He knows you. And he loves you. Now, lastly, let me speak to the positive. I want to challenge you guys to something. Challenge all of us to something, myself included. Our words are meant to build others up. And so to make, to make speaking life to others second nature, I'm going to challenge us to something. I want to challenge you to encouragement, okay? Real simple. I want you to take one person a day. <laughs> That's easy, right? One person a day. And I want you to, to uh, text, email, call. Even better would be to talk with them in person and just seek to encourage them in something. Now, here's the only catch. It has to be a different person every day. So if you're married, you can't like wake up roller and be like, baby, you look so good. You look awesome. You're beautiful. Like, no, that doesn't get you out of it. Okay? So um, I want you to take a different person every day. It could be a family member or it could just be your grocery store clerk. But use your words to bring life instead of death. Begin letting fresh water pour out of that spring instead of the salty that you've been, you've been springing forth. Okay? Here's the reality, guys. Jesus died not just for your forgiveness, but for your transformation. He died not just for you to be forgiven, but for you to, and I to be transformed. And one of the most identifiable places for that is our speech. We are to speak life to others We are to do that because God has spoken it over us. We are to speak life to them freely because he has spoken it over us freely. We are to speak life to them out of grace because it is out of his grace and his grace alone that he has done the same to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, as as, uh, Peter said earlier, we are a people of unclean lips. But Lord, you are a God who doesn't abandon that which is broken, but you seek to make it beautiful. And so, Lord, by your grace, I pray that you would come and that you would work in us. Some of us have a lot of repenting to do. Some of us um, are just terrified of what it will mean to actually speak life both to ourselves and to others. I pray that you would, by your grace, come and And work the gospel in us that we would see that in you we are secure. And so that we can be agents of life in the world. Even through our words. Make this church into a place where encouragement and joy and blessing are indicative. And not 
gossip and slander and wounding. Because, Lord, we are to image you. And you are a God who speaks life to us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.